Suncast is brought to you by SunGrow, providing clean power for all. Suncast is also brought to you by Trina Solar. Hey there, Solar Warriors. I'm Nico Johnson, and this is Suncast. Each week, I pull back the veil on the life and business insights of clean tech entrepreneurs building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. I hope what you learn from this conversation is a catalyst for your own growth. So thanks for tuning in and welcome to our tribe. Hey, welcome back, Solar Warrior. And this is a Tactical Tuesday, practical tools, tips, and advice to level up in your clean energy business and career. This week, I can almost feel and sense the excitement as we count down one more to episode 500 and our 499 is none other than our fifth quarterly podcasters round table. That's right. The quarterly gathering of some of the smartest podcasters I know hosted by our friends at TigerCom, Mr. Mike Casey, who himself has recently become a podcaster. I encourage you to check out his and all of our esteemed panelists podcasts. This was the most fun quarterly roundtable I think I have participated in. I just want to enunciate here the quality of talent on the mic. Of course, you've got Mike Casey from TigerCom, Emily Chasen from Generate Capital, who is one of the co-hosts now of Energy Gang, Gil Jenkins from Hannon Armstrong, who has the Climate Positive podcast, Mr. Joshua Porter, of course, from Solar Coaster, longtime quarterly roundtable participant, Bill Nussie, our friend and past guest here on Suncast, but progenitor of the Freeing Energy podcast. And last but certainly not least, Mr. Tim Montague of the Clean Power Hour. I'm telling you folks, this Tactical Tuesday was superb, not the least of which because our esteemed leader, Mr. Mike Casey, crowdsourced some excellent questions and I felt like the crew was just really feeling it. So without further ado, Know that there's a ton of other great content that you can dig into any other time. But right now, let's get ready to tune up your skills, Solar Warrior, as we tune in to this fifth quarterly podcasters roundtable here on Suncast. Alrighty. Well, clean techers, welcome back to the fifth episode of the clean quarterly clean tech podcasters roundtable. And um, we've got a distinguished crew here today. We were welcoming Bill Nussie back. He had missed the last one. So let me just, let me do go arounds here. Uh, Nico, want to introduce yourself. Uh, Nico's our, um, he's our, one of our, our cohorts and co-producers of this thing. Absolutely. Thanks, Mr. Mike Casey. My name is Nico Johnson. I am the creator and host of the Suncast podcast now entering its second uh round of 500 episodes we just uh actually just recorded episode 500 this morning and uh suncast media is our production company we help creators and uh and company leaders in the clean tech industry tell their story good gil hi folks uh gil jenkins uh glad to be back i'm the co-host of the climate positive podcast which i produce with my two colleagues here at hand and armstrong which is a clean energy investment company and uh we on our podcast, try to interview a range of folks, business leaders, academics, authors, uh, to try to give our listeners a bit of inspiration and uh, some insight into some, to some of the most promising uh, energy and environmental trends that are shaping climate action. Super. All right, Tim Montague. Hey, everybody. I'm Tim Montague, host of the Clean Power Hour podcast. 
And I am also a solar developer for a company called EDP Renewables. And I do bespoke solar consulting on the side as well. And I'm just uh, really thrilled to be here with so many awesome people. Great. Bill Nussi. Bill Nussi, uh, author of a book called Free Energy and also the host of a podcast for the same name. And we are focused on uh, the innovator, uh, entrepreneurial investor side of all the technologies that are helping this industry happen even faster uh, to get to a clean energy future as soon as we possibly can. Josh Porter. Uh, aloha, everybody. This is Josh here with the Solar Coaster Radio Show Media Film Company in Maui. Um, we started out as a radio show about four or five years ago and have kind of morphed and changed into uh, presently doing installations of new technology. Right now, we just did the Solar Edge home installation here in, in, in Makawao in Maui and shot and filmed a whole bunch of great, tech, great content around that. We also did the span load control panel and shot and filmed a bunch of the uh, technology. And uh, this right here behind me is the uh, is Angel Stadium. We're going to be showcasing some of our content at the main networking event at SBI in September. So I look forward to seeing you all there. And um, we are delighted that Emily has joined us. Emily, we're just going around doing introductions for the for the the attendees here. So just yourself and the podcast you host. Hear from you, um, Emily Chasen. I work at Generate Capital, a sustainable infrastructure company in San Francisco, <clears throat> and um, based in New York. And I co-host the Energy Gang podcast, and we talk all about everything that's going on in energy, in politics, in finance, uh, ESG, the whole gamut. And I'll, I'll uh, round out as saying, I'm Mike Casey. My day job is running Tigercom, the clean economy, more common public affairs firm. But I'm the host of Scaling Clean. Uh, we say is that podcast for clean economy CEOs, investors, and the people who advise them. So I'm just delighted to have this uh, group convened again. Uh, Julia Piper, who wanted to join us, uh, had a scheduling conflict. She sends her regrets, but we're, um, we're going to try to shoulder on without her because she's always an awesome addition. So anyway, um, what I love about doing this is that the editors who we host once a quarter, they have this commanding breadth of the sector, but the podcasters have commanding depth. Like, you know, they, their, the nature of their coverage is to really go deep on ideas and companies and people and products. And I think when you put people with a lot of deep perspectives together, you get a really um, vivid mosaic. You get a really clear picture that comes from little uh, individual perspectives. So it's just, and it's, plus they're fun. It's just a, it's the fun thing to do. So podcasters, we got a couple of questions. We kind of got to get out of the way because they're, it's hard to ignore them. One of them is what do we, what do we all take into account for the, you know, the, the Dobbs decision and Manchin's um, performance art, I guess I don't have a better term for it. Uh, so in the, in the wake of those two gut punches to the Biden uh, climate agenda, can I just get people's takes, just kind of do a go around. I want to ask about Ukraine. And then we, we have, uh, we've got like seven different listener questions that have already come in that are really good. And, and I know that I didn't send these to you in advance, but they literally got the last one, like five minutes before he came on. So mm -hmm. these are super smart questions and I'll throw, throw them, uh, to the group. But Nico, can we start with you? Just uh, your take on uh, where does Biden go and what is, does clean tech need Biden to go anywhere? Hmm. I suppose it's a two-part question. Yeah, uh, it is a, a two-part answer in many ways. I mean, he's kind of left with executive order. It's going to come down to what are the states committed to? I think we're going to see a lot in uh, proofs in the pudding when it comes down to state action, like states in New, like New York, for example. I don't see anything beyond really uh, executive order. And I wonder how much teeth it has, especially if 
White House changes hands in two years, you know, does that mean we've got two, two years to kind of get something done that the executive order sort of helps us move forward? I do think that uh, he can move the needle in trade policy and move trade policy more in our favor, even if he can't move the needle on something like Build Back Better right now. And that in particular, I am, the conversations I'm having are around sort of tangential industries that are, that are vectors that we can sort of attach onto. One is uh, the steel industry. The other would be the glass industry in particular. Both of them are really important for solar and for the broader economy around batteries and electric vehicles. And uh, I'm hearing some positive signs that there's you know legislation that's going to incentivize local manufacturing. And I think that will ultimately long-term have an impact on our industry, whether or not it has the kind of impact that Build Back Better would have on broader climate action is still to be seen. Emily, what's your take the wake of Dobbs and Manchin? You know, fortunately, the federal government has a lot of different tools available to it. I mean, I think everybody used these as a setback for sure. But the past few years, we've seen a lot of everything in clean tech driven <laughs> by the states. So, you know, California and New York have very aggressive goals and they've really created sort of a lot of the demand and clarity around the demand for these products. And there's a lot of states that are copying New York and California's policies. So I think that's still going to be the driver of demand right now. It's sort of a shame to not have more coordinated possibilities this way, but the Biden administration does have a lot of tools in its toolkit. So I think um, it's just going to force them to use some of those other things. Gil? Well, I'm reminded of... Um... What my grandma used to say, uh, we are depleted, but not defeated. I've been, that's been kind of my mantra since, um, certainly since last Friday with, with Manchin's decision, which I, I don't want to mull in this too much, but, but it's so galling um, given the stated reasons that uh, we're actually concerned about inflation and we know the bulk of inflation is driving by rising fuel costs. We can't get behind a bill that would actually lower uh, consumer electricity prices and, and you know, off-put against rising fuel costs for, for transportation. And mind you, it also was a package at the end that raised twice the revenue than, than it's been. So that's taking money out of the economy, which is inherently deflationary as well. So putting that aside, there is talk of a, of a last-ditch Hail Mary effort. Um, and, you know, I, I welcome... Those attempts, whatever the small percentage may be, it, it matters because this is our future. Uh, but certainly the, the odds are incredibly low that, you know, Manchin has a change of heart. So we do have to shift to on the federal <clears throat> level attention on on uh, the president is prepping a new suite of executive actions. Um, some of those could be impactful, but I think what people are forgetting and, and then I'll move on is that, you know, but the Biden administration has already released two or three, at least by my count, very robust climate executive orders, particularly in the area of federal procurement. There was one at the end of December. And while I'm all for new actions, I think one of the most impactful things we could do is take some stock on the already ambitious executive orders. And how how are we doing on that a year and a half in? And how much can we move the needle by 2024 or, or 2025? And so I have a little bit of concern that we're putting too much emphasis on New executive actions, you know, we have to do both, I suppose, but um, there's much out there still that's already been targeted, and, and I'm concerned we're not moving fast enough on the existing initiatives. All right, Tim Montague, spokesman for the Midwest, what do we got? We have to remember that Americans want the energy transition by and large. They may not be concerned about climate change, but they want the energy transition they're starting to understand the value of electrification of transportation. 
as gas prices are going up and energy prices are going up in general. And so consumers will start to drive this more. Big finance has already been driving it, right? The economies of, of wind, solar, and energy storage are winning the day. And that is why the fossil fuel uh, utilities are making the transition. So we do need good legislation in Washington. I'm not going to deny that at all, but the action is at the states. And I don't have a lot of faith in executive orders. They're too short-lived. Not that they shouldn't try something there, but I just think let's pay more attention to consumers and what they want. All right, Josh Porter. You know, I got to tell you, there's there's very few things in this world that I feel I know less about than how the federal government makes decisions. Uh-huh. So when join when join the club, question, Josh. <laughs> when you ask That's me funny. Kind of he question, just said federal government making decisions. That's a funny right? joke. Anyway. <laughs> uh, you know, and I tend to um, to tend to default to the idea that. Well, we know there's kind of similar to what Tim said. There's a uh, there's just such a hunger for this technology. I think it's been uh, kind of you know clarified recently with all the things that are happening in the world. With but specifically with gas prices. I mean, I, and I tend to think on the ground right here in our home state of Hawaii. You know, we've seen gas prices as much as six fifty a gallon, and then guys are driving big trucks around, and it just doesn't work. I mean, now you're getting hit four or five, six hundred bucks a month for your gas prices. And then the utilities are already there. We're 40 cents kilowatt hour in that kind of territory. So, you know, when you have that, I see a huge drive people to buy an EV. I'm looking around all over the place, trying to find an EV. It's a reasonable price. Right. And so I, I look towards that. That's kind of what I see. I did try to find some information out when I read this question. I realized that my, I'll give a little plug for a friend of mine. This is a, a book that maybe can help us kind of learn a little bit more about the politics of global climate change by Patrick Regan. I have been trying to read through this to better understand how decisions are made at various levels, federal, state, or international. Uh, he's a great guy, a Notre Dame Peace Professor. Met him. He's started a PV manufacturing firm in Elkhart, Indiana, employing only ex-cons. Amazing fella. I think it's a book to check out. Maybe we can find some answers there. All right. I saved the small solutions guy for last to address the impact of the failure at the large scale. So, Mr. Nussie? Hey, <laughs> you know, listen, uh, I think the, the mansion uh, stumble was just another in a long series of opportunities for the world leaders to do what they should have done. I mean, I, uh, COP26 was largely a whiff in my point. So no big surprise the U.S., one of the most lagging countries in the world in terms of this stuff, uh, whiffed again. Disappointing. Uh, but, you know, I, I'm, a, I'm an optimist. And there's in the wave of this sort of terrible things going on. Yeah, I talked to a friend of mine who's in London this morning, and he was telling me what it's like to live in 104 degree weather in London, which they've never had in the history of the that area. And it's happening in Spain, Italy, uh, across the Europe. And, and Europeans are different than Americans, and they tend to be more accepting of the changes coming. And so I think that between the Ukraine war, the, the fuel shocks that are happening because of that, and the European approach is that Europe is going to be incredibly aggressive on this. And they only have to do one little thing that's going to kick America's butt and get us in and uh, get us going, which is uh, put a carbon border tax in place. So even if we don't put a carbon tax in the U.S., if we want to sell stuff into Europe, which is one of our yeah. largest markets in the U.S., we're going to have to pass a carbon border tax. So I think it's and, but I'll tell you what, I think all of that doesn't matter because Josh said it. And I want to echo there's something that everybody's forgetting that all this stuff we're talking about, all this clean energy stuff, it's a technology. And everyone forgets that. This isn't like, you know, finding a better way to get coal out of the ground or some new nuclear 
reaction. This is actually like your iPhone. And the thing that everyone's missing is that in two years, it's going to be 20% cheaper. And in 10 years, it's going to be 50% cheaper. And that is an economic juggernaut that nobody's going to be able to, it's policies and politics and lobbying are all going to fade away. So I always like to joke that there's a lot of things you can uh, debate about in America, whether you're red or you're blue, but there's one thing you can't tell any American, which is that I'm going to take a, I'm going to make you pay a whole bunch of extra money. Uh, your family's going to have a much bigger bill because I want to make sure that some large giant um, corporation has very comfortable profit levels. You know, it doesn't matter whether you're Republican or Democrat, no one in our country will put up with that. So I think it's a matter of time, not too much longer, three, four, five, six, seven years where the costs become so unstoppable that the transition happens, even if the politicians are kicking and screaming. Yeah, Charles Coke, are you listening to him? This is my friend, Bill Nussie. Take you. All right, good. Um, let's just do uh, 15 second responses on Ukraine. Putin's been making a mess of Ukraine for five, six months now. Ripple effects around the world. Is that having uh, an effect on clean economy as you experience it? Just maybe, uh, let me start with you, Tim. I don't really know. I, of course, I think corporations are taking advantage of the situation. I think that we should look to Denmark. You know, they get 60% of their energy from wind. Enough said. Gotcha. Josh. Well, um, I think that we're seeing a, <clears throat> I'm, right now in Hawaii, there's like almost all, like almost all the major RFP phase one. RFP phase one is the largest utility scale procurement or uh, of any utility in the history of the United States, right? For renewables. So, uh, but most of those solar systems, I want to say like three or four last week just got kicked and they've been getting kicked like dominoes for various reasons. And a lot of that has to do with pricing and renegotiation of PPAs. I have to assume that has to do with inflation, cost of materials, cost of goods. And I think that a part of that has to do with the war. So uh, that is my kind of chief concern at the moment. These are systems that I thought we had set up. We went through the decade long mandate to, uh, to, PUC approval to the utility issue in the RFPs to getting them awarded and all the work that's behind that. And now we're at a place where they were like, yeah, we're, we're good to go. We're going to hit 80 points, 80% in renewables that is in Maui and X in, in Kauai in the next year or so. And then they're dropping like flies. And that, that, that is a bummer, man. So I, I, that, that's what I see the real world implications. And I think it is probably related to that. I, you know, so that's what I see. I, 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 I don't like it. Don't like it at all. Gil. Yeah, I think there's no question that the paradigm changed in February and certainly the conversation around climate change, you know, it's it's about meeting the dual challenges of of the climate crisis and and energy security and national security. I do think that the obviously the the upside boost to clean energy and that transition is, is will be and is being felt more acutely in Europe first. And there, I think that on in terms of the broader conversation, I think the clean energy industry was a little late in the early parts of the spring um, and lost some ground on the broader messaging more around energy security. We came back, but I, I sort of see it, it dissipating. Um, there's not as much of headline vigor around, well, this just makes the case even stronger on needing to accelerate the um, uh, transition to clean energy faster. It was already happening, but uh, this gave another uh, proof point, certainly. So I, I think it's at this point, um, there'll be more twists and turns, but I'm not sure there's been a um, a major boost in the immediate sense. But in the long term, there's no question this, this strengthens the case and the demand for uh, a faster clean energy transition. All right, let's do uh, Bill, Nico, and Emily on this last question. Basically, 
what's the effect Ukraine, the Ukraine war is having? I think all the really large projects are lagging indicators. I, I'm an optimist. I look at leading indicators. And the leading indicators for me are uh, clean tech, the tech, tech part of clean tech. And I just interviewed uh, the two founders of clean tech, uh, uh, climate tech venture capital, Sophie Kim and uh, Sophie Purdom and Kim Zhou. And uh, they just came out with some really interesting data that actually climate uh, tech funding uh, increased in the second quarter and looks to be increasing in the third <laughs> quarter. So again, I think people that are taking the long view, uh, looking at the the trends beyond uh, what happens quarter to quarter, I, I think there's tons of reason to be optimistic as frustrating as it is to see some of these really important projects slow down. Uh, long-term, this is a, this is unfortunately a marathon. should be a sprint. It's a marathon. I think the, the outcome of the marathon is still really positive, even despite these hiccups right now, big hiccups. Nico? Yeah. Oh, go ahead, Joe. Oh, sorry. Just a quick follow-up. I thought that was an excellent point. I, I was surprised and encouraged that uh, clean tech VC funding would, remained um, stable and strong um, with all the turmoil in markets as well. Um, but also a great fact uh, on, on the optimistic note that uh, EV sales had a record uh, Q2, up 66%. And I'm, I'm tracking to see, are we going to see that in Q3? Because I think there was a perception that obviously this would be great for EVs, but with supply chain challenges and limited, um, could EVs really capitalize on this moment of $5 gasoline? So um, let's set more records on quarterly sales for EVs. That, that was encouraging. Despite those headwinds, um, you know, we had big numbers there. Nico, Ukraine. Yeah. Tagging on a really good friend of mine wrote a book recently that suggested that the EV market is a Trojan horse for everything, all our dreams and wishes to come true in renewable energy. Uh, so I'm tracking with you there, Gil. I agree. And I think that uh, the EV industry in general got a gift. Uh, you don't look a gift horse in the mouth. Um, I think that broadly and looking at macroeconomic issues for kind of what sets up clean energy to succeed. When I was developing solar projects in Latin America, which is before I started Suncast, I was it was right at the time, 2013, 2014, when oil was going from what we see in prices now, 100, $120 a barrel down to 50. And the big question was, if $50 is the new normal for oil, does renewables have a chance? Well, the reality is where, you know, in, in, in developing uh, nations, not developed economies, but in developing nations where bunker fuel is the alternative for peaking, everybody is asking themselves, how do we get to renewables as quickly as possible? So outside the United States, uh, the oil crisis is having a big impact on, uh, on macroeconomic government uh, pocketbooks that, where they are by and large using oil to fuel the lights and the air conditioning. Um, so that's one side. On the other is, you know, the back to the issues with Manchin and also the the war and and increasing uh, prices for fuel the pump, but also insecurity of supply. California Energy Wire had this article last week. I don't know if you guys saw it, but California is looking at potentially keeping the last nuclear plant, Diablo Canyon power plant, open. Right. So here we are looking at coal plants and nuclear plants that were supposed to be sunset. They were supposed to be closed by law. That Policymakers are saying, whoa, 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 wait a minute. Hang on. Are we sure? Like, can we really let's hold on for another minute here? Are we are we certain? So I think that it's it's having that dual. There is a dual effect where globally the war is impacting the macroeconomic situation around how people generate electricity. And here at home, we still have now more argument for policymakers to say, wait a minute, energy security at home. Like, let's keep these plants alive that we already know are creating our baseload power. 
Emily, last word on Ukraine, and then we're going to go to audience questions. Yeah, I'm going to echo a little bit about what Nico said, but I think it really changed the conversation on energy security and people thinking about what that is. I was just looking at gas prices and just it affects people like from very basic levels, like everyday purchases, all the way up to the government and policymakers. So um, the gas prices are like $5 a gallon this year. They were $3 a gallon last year. So this is a big difference for everybody's wallet. And I think when we're thinking about the energy transition and the ability for those prices to come down, like we were talking about earlier and deflationary impacts in that, 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 that is an important thing in there. But the most important thing that to come out of this, I think, is people rethinking these plans to shut down nuclear plants. Yeah. Ironically, the Ukraine was about or ironically in Ukraine, about 55% of their energy before the war came from nuclear. It was one of the like biggest places in the world where there was nuclear energy. In the US, it's about 50% of our clean energy, 20% of our total energy for nuclear. Um, and there's tons of places where they were talking about sunsetting these plants. And I think they're going to rethink that. I think they're going to rethink you know, what's the marginal benefit of continuing <laughs> to operate these versus actually shutting it down. And just the cost benefit situation is changing. All right. I'm going to go to audience questions. I'll just throw them out. Anybody can take the question. We don't need to go round robins. But let me start with a question from Jake Sussman. He is uh, one of my co-founders on the Cleantech Leaders Roundtable. So I'm going to paraphrase Jake's question. But basically, he, he, he wants you all to answer this question. New York Times is going after net zero goals. Is it better to use the stick of shaming on greenwashing sustainability goals, or is it better to praise those who are doing it well and push the others as a result? Anybody want to take that question? So I, I'm going to, I'll step up and be the first. I, I think I'm going to take a leaf of Gill's book. My grandma always said, you catch more flies with honey than vinegar. And uh, I always believe that if you take the high road and praise those who are doing it right, you set the example. And I'm going to choose that answer because that's what I want. For my children, I want us to be as as people who are in the media, we should be setting the standard for what is right and what we aspire to see if we don't see it. I see organizations uh, like 3BL that do a great job of shining a light on the ESG uh, activities of big companies. And a lot of folks think that, that, uh, that, that a lot of that stuff is greenwashing, but the reality is that on the whole, we are moved, we're moving so much closer to our ideal goal back in 20, 2006 when I got in the industry than, uh, than we were back then. And uh, there's always going to be a level of greenwashing, but I like to point to the companies that are doing it well. Greenwashing, I think you really just have to think about where we are in time. I mean, even in the clean energy industry, I don't know many clean energy projects that have been made with completely without fossil fuels. Um, even if you're just going to use a truck to do some maintenance, right? There's an economy that we've entirely built on fossil fuels and we have to transition off of it. And so you can't really be a purist. The perfect can be the enemy of the good. I think we just have to remember that all the time when we're calling out greenwashing that of course you don't want people to overstate things or to lose trust in the industry, but um, we just have to also know that we don't live in a perfect world yet. Right. I'll add one more thing, which is, I, I don't know if the SEC will get away with uh, survive the Supreme Court beating they'll get as they try to create transparency on uh, carbon emissions and things like that. But I think the, uh, a lot of the green, the calls for green calls against greenwashing and the claims of climate heroes are all very subjective. And 
uh, we're going to be in this finger pointing mode and, and asking this question that you've asked, Mike, which is a great question. But I think if we can just get some solid transparency going, uh, the data will speak for itself and greenwashing will just go away because you can't get away with it. Uh, I just hope to me that would probably do more from an executive action point of view than almost anything else I'm aware of uh, just by creating transparency. And I, I do have, I, I've talked to a couple of Fortune 500 CEOs in the last two weeks uh, and uh, you know, they're acutely aware of this and what it means to their businesses. And one's a fossil fuel CEO and the other one was a, <clears throat> a very forward thinking CEO. And they both, they're both incredibly aware, excited, concerned about uh, the SEC actually changing what they need to report, but it's very consequential to them. And I think it will have a big effect. Yeah, Bill, it's interesting you say that we have a client, uh, Michael Parr at the Ultra Low Carbon Solar Alliance. And he, he last year, he wrote a series of analyses and he talked about that we're in the CSO era, the Chief Sustainability Officer era. That is, as these big sustainability commitments have been made, budgets profile and the distance you can fall and splat reputationally have grown. So we went from, you know, CSOs sometimes were siloed, not very high powered positions. And now it's actually fairly consequential. And I thought that was kind of interesting. So there's more of an acute awareness of reputational risk. If you're doing things like you're buying solar from that's made in Western China, that for every 40 pound solar panel, they burn 520 pounds of coal. I mean, that's actually a fairly significant number. So it's interesting. I also was struck by the lack of standards. What is a credible sustainability program? What is a silly or fallacious sustainability program? So it's hard, I think, to charge greenwashing if you don't have anything approaching um, a uniform standard for any of this stuff. It seems to me to be sort of challenging. But let me move to others because we, we got them coming. Hey, in Mike, right here. Mike yes, uh, one quick follow up. Um, and I hope I answered uh, Jake's question here. But, you know, I think. The greenwashing concerns are real, and and but I, I'm more concerned about, to a certain extent, a little bit more, the broader attack on on ESG and conflating that term with sustainability and, and climate action. And you know, we're seeing it from all. It's it, a lot of sort of career right wing politicians who are sort of trying to make this the next overheated debate in our culture wars. You know, it's brought to you from the same people who brought. Um, CRT uh, and it's woke capitalism. So then, you know, I think some of it's silly. Some of it's trying to raise money, but uh, it masks reasonable critiques about the wild west of ESG ratings, which Emily knows well from and, and serious reforms that need to happen there. But I look at some of the messengers and they're certainly being opportunistic and, and, and calling out folks, um, you know, you have to kind of question their motives and their, and their funding. So there's certainly a broader uh, assault on sustainability, ESG-focused companies and, and clean energy companies are getting wrapped up on that. We've heard this um, before, but it's just back with more vigor. Hey, pardon the interruption, but I wanted to just let you know how much of an impact you have on Suncast. Yeah. You, thank you for clicking play. Without you, this show is just me shouting into the void. But there's still people who don't even know about Suncast. I know, I can hardly believe it myself. (laughs) But that's where you can help me yet again. There's a simple way that you can show some love and help others discover the show. If you cruise over to www.ratethispodcast.com forward slash Suncast, 
I'd love it if you would leave a five-star rating and enthusiastic review. That's possibly the single kindest thing that you could do for me today. So if the show has helped, inspired, or even entertained you at all, I'd love it if you would head over to ratethispodcast.com forward slash suncast and give me a virtual two thumbs up. Hey, I know you are a savvy listener. Heck, you're listening to Suncast and you've probably, as a result, heard of a little company called SunGrow. If you're not using SunGrow inverters on your projects, I would love to better understand why. They are the inverter of choice for many of the EPCs that I know. SunGrow is the number one in gigawatts deployed. They've got the top bankability in the industry. Heck, Solve uses them for the majority of their projects. And you may not even know, but SunGrow has the largest R&D team in the power electronics industry. These three key points alone have convinced most of the major U.S. developers to prefer SunGrow. They now experience a diversified supply chain, local service team, patented containerized product, all with their seamless pain-free commissioning. Look, imitation is the highest form of flattery. So why spend all of your cycles on what inverter to use when the largest EPC in the land has already done the heavy lifting for you? You can have their same experience for your projects. See how at mysuncast.com forward slash sungrow. Got a question from the EV uh, infrastructure char- charging infrastructure company Electrata. What are the biggest obstacles to electric uh, vehicle electrification facing fleet operators? Anyone want to take that question? I'll, I'll go on that. You know, this is a serious problem and challenge because when you want to install big electrical infrastructure to charge a fleet of EVs, the utility is going to say, that's great, Mr. Fleet Owner, but that's going to cost $500,000 in a transformer upgrade or some other infrastructure upgrade, which can make the financial piece of the project challenging. Um, This is where it is so vital that we have good federal legislation like the investment tax credit, the ITC, which makes it, you know, it softens the blow. We have a 26% tax credit on solar or solar and storage today in the U S and it's a game changer. And so that's one is, is we need good policy. Two is we need to reform how authorities having jurisdiction, which is a wonky term, but that is just a reference to cities and states and counties, the government officials that are permitting construction projects. We have to streamline that process. And Solar Energy Industries Association is, is driving a, a good uh, wedge on that front with the solar app, making it easier for solar installers to do their jobs faster, cheaper, quicker. And we need this for all types of the built environment, though. Yeah, I think there's actually a broader way to think about it as well. I think maybe people aren't thinking broadly enough about the cost of conversion in some type cases. If you look at we work with a lot of hydrogen electric vehicle fleets and forklifts and that kind of thing. And when we've had companies switch over to from like a diesel powered forklift to a hydrogen electric forklift, they ended up saving money, saving warehouse space, um, having benefits to health for their workers that they didn't have to 
like inhale all these diesel um and you look at the price of diesel and gas today that it's really different and volatile um so i think there's like a broader group of benefits and it's not just oh look at that big cost up front i build on that by pointing out that <laughs> any analysis i've seen is the total cost of ownership of electric fleets is substantially lower uh that's even before you couple the fact that the average ev is probably going to last 20 30 50 100 longer uh, and the uh, and when I, this is also a market that I am enthralled to see uh, tech companies all over the place going after. There's a million problems to solve, including the big ones. Tim's talking about people building these really cost-effective battery systems that load shift when the charging occurs to when the grid can handle the capacity. There's so much innovation around fleet management right now. Uh, and the cool thing is, like, and I put a, if I decide to buy a car, I have a very narrow set of things. Like, what does it look like? Can I afford it? You know. It's, but when you're a fleet owner, you've got a lot of sharp pencils that you can find ways to save money because you're spending so much. So there's so much innovation. I suspect we'll look back in 20 years, 10 years at the EV fleet revolution and just be head shaking about how primitive it is today. But companies like the one that asked the question are going to help reinvent this whole market. It's going to be, I think this is a big area of innovation at fleet, fleet owner, electric fleet ownership and management. I know a lot of clean tech hearts flutter at the EV topic, but I got some others I got to pull you all into. Okay. Um, Kevin O'Rourke at ACOR uh, pointed out a really good piece by a friend of mine, Rob Gramlick, uh, and his piece is um, No Transmission, No Transition, How FERC Can Unlock the Clean Energy Future with New Power Lines. I'm going to take a question that Kevin and Rob kind of sort of pose, but I'm going to just put it in simple terms. What's the bigger barrier to the clean energy transition, transmission or storage? Which is the bigger of the two barriers? Just, I'll just go around, just binary answer. Josh, transmission or storage? What's the bigger barrier? <laughs> I don't know off the top of my head. I've never thought about them in, like, in terms of uh, which one is, is more of a problem. I mean, the, the transmission right now, you know, the, the notion of stringing energy, uh, like copper wires across dead trees is our primary mechanism of delivering energy is pretty archaic, right? So I tend to think of abundant electrons produced locally. So I'll say transmission is a problem. All right. All right, Mr. Nussie, something tells me you got an opinion on this. Uh, which, which, which one do you pick? You know, when I go to uh, when I go to a racetrack, never been to a racetrack. But if I go to a racetrack betting on a horse, the, the, I'm not asking which horse is going to be slower. I say which one's faster. And so I think storage is a technology that's going to happen incredibly quickly. And storage is also a perfect uh, uh, partner to what Josh says, the local energy stuff. And I wish every time that everyone posed that question, they would not make it as in you know what are the challenges to being as if the only answer we have is to build out the big grid. I wish we would put a little bit of our federal efforts, a little bit of our mind share, a little bit of our infrastructure investments into local scale things, which by the way, you can build a local scale project in a month. Uh, you can put storage locally. It's not a panacea at all, but there's a third player around this card table that everybody seems to forget. All right. Gil, transmission or storage? What's the bigger barrier? Transmission. We've we've just put it off for too long. There's some um, some hopeful green shoots of the stuff that was in IIJA and Rob Rob's working hard on it. Kevin too. I mean, um, we just uh, in order to hit the targets we have, we we absolutely have to build significant interregional transmission. Fast. Tim, Tim, what's your vote? Well, I would encourage our listeners to Google energy prices in ERCOT, which is the Texas grid. And they are hot, hot, hot right now. And there's a blue dot at the bottom of Texas where there's a lot of wind power. It's cheap. It's negative cost energy right now, but it can't get to 
the bulk of the population of Texas because they don't have enough transmission. So I'll say transmission. Emily, what's your take? Transmission or storage? Bigger barrier? Um, I think the storage market's coming along really quickly. So I would say transmission is also the bigger barrier. There's a lot of just billions and billions of dollars that need to be invested in transmission um, and just having a smarter grid where people are able to, to talk to each other and where, you know, you could interface with storage more effectively and, you know, even using electric vehicles or buses as part of that solution. Good. Nico. Same answer. Uh, I would say ditto to everything Bill Nussie said and, and all that followed. I think transmission is the, it, I, I, concur with bill it, it it's not an either or in my book you know i'll, I'll just tell because they're at, coming out of stealth i'm involved with a company which has got me much more optimistic on transmission if you aren't familiar with them they're breeze it's mike Orsch and a group of people are they're going to use idled oil and gas pipelines there's three three million miles of pipelines under north america 25 percent wow. of those are good idled. Idea. good idea they're going to use the pipes as wires and they're going to ship compressed air, store it underground. It, it is mind blowing. Like wow. I think these guys could actually pick the lock on the whole transmission conundrum. So just worth knowing. I I, I love them, and I I like to I like to give the them other a shout one out there. that's really cool. Mike is uh, Amory Lovins is working on with a company that's uh, repowering existing transmission, so you can get fifty, one hundred percent more capacity through the existing lines. Uh, with minimal costs and changes, and you don't have any of the nimbyism that stops all the other transmission projects. Yeah. So there's a lot of optimism uh, around transmission, uh, but it's it's just such a slow, expensive, and regulated process that is probably its biggest. Uh, it's not the tech, of course. It's the people who have to sit in committee rooms and make decisions or not. Had a uh, anonymous questioner say, "What is the role energy efficiency can play in resiliency plans, and how does it impact the cost of resiliency efforts?" Isn't that just math? You know, if you demand less energy, then you right. don't need as much and it's much more resilient. That's what, that's where I'd come down on that. All right. So significant. I think, right. Well, I would, I would say energy, energy efficiency, if you include in it load shifting, then it's a big game changer, right? If you can, if you can uh, charge a, freeze a block of ice during the nighttime and then use that to cool your home during the day, as an example, or you put, charge a battery. But I, I do think that energy efficiency, when it becomes dynamic, it's a game changer. Uh, but like Emily said, if it's full energy, uh, uh, just standard energy efficiency using LED bulbs, you're, it's just a linear effect on the overall system. Okay. Another anonymous questioner. Is there going to be an appetite to limit or cap local government control over renewable siting decisions if that's what it takes to meet clean energy goals? I believe, Gil, I think you said something about uh, – about stripping away local control, or Emily, one of you two, and, and it's interesting. So any thoughts on on that, just to tease that topic out a little bit more? So the question is, is someone going to try to limit uh, or the eminent domain stuff? Is that what we're talking about? No, it's, it's, I think the idea is, uh, is there going to be an effort at the state level to reduce the amount of um, blocking ability that a town... Yeah. A, a, a township or a county can have over a project that clearly benefits uh, the state. I guess it depends on the, the, how state and the, how strong that politician is polling um, <laughs> the various. Um, I don't know. I, that that would be great. Um, I haven't heard any rumblings of any any um, governors that uh, or other state leaders that want to take that um, brave but important step to. Um, stop nimbyism for some of these projects. Anybody else want to touch on that one? I think that, I mean, I, I, 
as I listen to the things being discussed across the United States, just as a citizen who reads stuff, it seems that the move is towards more local control. And so I, I struggle to see the federal government, particularly the, after the midterm elections and after the presidential election in a couple of years, leaning into anything that's going to override uh, state and local town community control. So I, I think that's a challenge. I don't. I think it's going to go the other way, uh, Mike. It's not going to get. It's not going to have more top-down control. It's going to have less. And um, I did, yeah, I wish I was optimistic about that. But you know, I, I always point out to people that a bunch of creative legislators, uh, I don't know, twenty years ago, passed a federal law that made it illegal for anyone to disallow uh, satellite dishes on houses. So you can have a ton of neighborhoods around the United States where the homeowners association says it's illegal to put solar panels on your roof, but they can't stop satellite dishes. Uh, that's a national law. And so the, occasionally the government can do stuff like this, but uh, we're not turning that way right now, I don't think. Well, Mr. Nussie, I, yeah. I, I think you're, for, you're forgetting the very important thing that a lot of these very responsible state legislatures have done. They have barred municipalities from banning gas as a default right, for electric ovens. So, you know, there's clearly an appetite uh, at the state level to to harmonize things. I, I know they're not playing. They're not picking winners or losers in these red state legislators, are they? No. And, uh, Emily. You know, in, in, in Nico's state, there's a, there's a bill that's floating in North Carolina that anywhere the state has free uh, EV <laughs> charging, that it has to be matched by a free gas pump right there. I mean, this is this stuff's brilliant. I don't think I mean, I, I could call 10 PhDs and they couldn't come up with this stuff. It's, it's awesome. It, it, it says it clearly indicates we've got recreational marijuana in, in uh, North Carolina. So. <laughs> All right. Emily. Yeah, I'd say um, obviously permitting is a challenge and, you know, getting local communities, I guess. I mean, I almost don't blame them for being suspicious of energy projects that come in for a really long time. All of the energy projects that have come in have had just horrible impacts Great on point. local communities. We saw in New York State, they were going to do this big hydropower project. We were talking about this on the Energy Gang a few weeks ago. And um, there was a lot of resistance in the community saying, well, how will this affect my water? And they just want to know and be sure because they don't want to deal with years of problems that they had from those projects. But what we do have the opportunity now is to just educate a little bit more about like what these renewable projects are, what wind and solar do differently from the energy projects of the past. And um, also the opportunity to just get communities engaged and excited about it. At Generate, we're really big into community solar projects where you put in the project and the local community has the opportunity to lower their electric bills um, because that's in their town. And then that is something that gets the whole community really excited about the project. So just thinking about how people can participate in the energy transition, I think is probably the key to that. Um, policy obviously can help too, but I don't think you just have to gain people's trust. Well said. Well said. All right. Got a question from uh, Atlas Renewable Energy. They're uh, they're down in Miami, large-scale solar developer, solar and wind developer. They want to know how can supply chains be strengthened to provide cost-effective alternatives to components utilizing, utilizing forced labor, as well as ease the supply-demand imbalances? Any thoughts on that? I think this is a transparency problem. You know, it's difficult when it's sourced in China to get clarity on what was made and how it was made. I'm on the board of Clean Energy Associates, which is one of the companies that's actually helping solve that problem. And it's uh, the clarity, you know, the getting the provenance of the raw materials is the solution, and uh, uh, and then getting accountability along the supply chain. But my, to me, if I if I had a magic if I had a magic wand and I could change one thing about this uh, the solar industry right now would be domestic manufacturing. Let's bring as much of this into the United States as we can and just make all these issues a moot point. 
And uh, it's nice to hear some rumblings that maybe some serious people besides just my state Senator John Ossoff talking about this. And so uh, I think that's uh, I think domestic manufacturing is the shortest cut answer to the supply chain hiccups that seem to be everywhere right now. Yeah, I was talking about this on the Energy Gang last week. We were talking about inflation and the impact of that on the supply chain. And one thing to think about in this is a sort of an opportunity to think more circular in what we're doing. Um, when we're talking about changing to clean energy, we're talking about moving from more of a fossil fuel based economy to more of a metals based economy. And we really do have to think about how we're extracting these materials and how we're going to reuse them over and over again. So if these higher costs and these supply chain problems are a reason to say, oh, well, what can I reuse? What can I find locally? Um, where can I source materials differently so it's more efficient? Um, I think that's something that will be a longer term benefit, actually. You may pay okay. attention to um, I don't, just I know I'm I'm uh, doing client promotion fest on here, which I probably shouldn't do. But I'll just, it, it is worth noting um, Secretary Granholm joined uh, Next Tracker out in Pittsburgh, I think last month. It's the third of these events where Dan Sugar basically went against 30 years of economic trajectory. You know, like when, all the time I've been, it went from high school to where I am now. The whole thing in the global economy was make stuff in the cheapest possible place because you can always put it on shipping containers and get it somewhere. And what's interesting is, is Dan said to me, he said that the cost to our customers, the the higher prices of making things here is lower than the cost of supply chain instability that COVID basically created. And it was interesting. So he's literally pulled uh, factory line equipment out of Malaysia, out of Brazil, put it on chips, brought it here, and has now set it up new steel lines in Texas, Arizona, and Pennsylvania, part of a reshoring effort. So I don't know if it's a trend, but it was, you know, they are the market leader in in trackers. And I thought it was kind of interesting that they were willing really? to do that and be really quite overt about it and very public about it in order to like, it was all just about assuring customers like we're there. So that was kind of interesting. It's also interesting just hanging on to, um, I was going to bring up the fact that Next Tracker is already onshoring a lot of their manufacturing as well, Mike, but the supply chain is constrained right now in more than one way. Projects are being delayed right now because ports are delayed, right? And prices are going up on projects and prices are going up on modules and, and not almost nobody is talking about it. But if we think about like, the fact that we're shipping all of this stuff, uh, then we have to take a look at the shipping industry at large. And the shipping industry is the sixth, as, a, as an industry, is the sixth largest emitter of, of emissions in the world. So we have to ask ourselves in the name of uh, globalization and cost reduction, We've created the sixth largest emitter of fossil fuel emissions. And lo and behold, 40, fully 40% of products transported by global shipping are fossil fuels themselves, coal, oil, gas, so that we can power, power our industrialized life. So, Nico, uh, just so I'm being faithful to my prior post, when you said that kind of weird word, I don't know what it means, emissions, you meant pollution, right? Pollution. Right. Got it. Okay. The bad stuff we don't like. Okay. Emissions. That's right. Exxon Mobil wants to talk about emissions. We want to talk about that. Right. Okay. So yeah, I got you. Bro. I don't know. I mean, I'm not, I'm not the quick one at math here, but 40% of all global shipping represents is, is 40% of the sixth largest uh, pollutant pollutant in the world. And we're, and it, wow. and it represents shipping fossil fuels around the world to power our lives. So another fun stat for you, Nico, is that uh, depending on you ask 30 to 40% of the U S military budget is to protect the shipping routes mm. to move plate oil all over the world. That's a difficult number to pin down, but serious people have said it's between 20 and 40%, if I remember correctly. 
and and that has its own carbon footprint, but just the vast human resources and other resources in the country. Yeah. Uh, so the the it's difficult. It'd be interesting. I'm sure someone's done a comparison between the full cost of getting solar made in China delivered over to the U.S. versus the yeah. full cost of getting oil, natural gas from well, oil uh, from the Middle East, for example. Fascinating. It, it comes back to this whole conversation around ESG. Are we actually taking into account the full cost of the activities we're engaged in? Right. And this is why major funds, not this month, not last month or last year, but for the last five plus years have been removing the fossil industry from their portfolio. Um, we, we, are, we need to take into account and it doesn't matter whether I concur with the previous comments or like it doesn't matter whether in the U.S. we put a carbon tax. We're going to have to face the pay the piper anyway because Europe's going to enforce carbon tax and we're going to have to deal with the fact that we're one of the largest trade partners and we our, our, our manufacturing is going to require it. So may as well try to minimize the overall carbon footprint of our manufacturing and bring it back home. I think that's one of the biggest answers. I concur with Bill to Atlas uh, Renewables question. I hate to be the downer here, but there's no question that, um, you know, there was a $8 billion advanced manufacturing, clean energy manufacturing credit in, in the in the tax bill and, and Ossoff's bill, which would be 20 gigawatts of solar. I mean, we have to keep fighting for that. I, I'm, we're also, Washington's talking about passing a $52 billion subsidy to to advance semiconductor manufacturing. And that's actually got a tax credit in it with direct pay. So I think we have some work to do to uh, convince our politicians that um, the clean energy materials and the associated domestic manufacturing as is as strategic for America as semi, uh, semiconductors and chips are, because um, I'm just kind of, uh, you know, that's what's going to take. We know tariffs don't work to spur um you know, increases in domestic manufacturing for, for solar. We're in our last six minutes here. Let me go to one more audience question and just do one run Robin here. So Tom Weirich, um, our friend at EDP Renewables, he's got a book coming out. Uh, really, I think a lovely book that had tips to the, the, the original, the OCs, the original clean techers, you know, the ones that took risk a long time ago. So he sent in a question. I'm going to just do a, a, take a liberty with it and ask you, what is the risk that clean economy needs to take more of or needs to take in the first place? If you had to pick one risk for them to take or take more of, what would it be? Bill? I think it gets back to domestic manufacturing. If we can make solar and battery and inverters and transformers here in the United States, I mean, people don't realize the transformers that are the backbone of our grid or most of them are not made here. And so, um, Bringing that manufacturing back to the United States is uh, uh, it's, it's risky. And I've talked to, th- these are conversations I have with a lot of people, and it's difficult to write a $250 billion check to build a solar manufacturing facility when the pol- politicians are changing their, their minds as a group every two years, every four years. So I think that's the one risk that I would love to see people in a position to take uh, is to get the supply chain uh, onshored for all these products. Tim, risk that we need to take or take more of? I totally agree uh, with this theme of reshoring manufacturing. It's it is by far and away the biggest risk and the biggest reward for our economy and for the climate crisis. Let's make it at home. It, it's it's so good for the economy. It's so good for everyday people, and and it, it gives us a level of control that we just don't have with the globalization that has occurred in the last 40 years. So we should step that back uh, pronto. 
Nico. Uh, I'll take it a slightly different direction. Uh, I think the biggest risk that clean tech companies need to take is to hire more people who don't have five years experience in clean tech, solar, energy storage, whatever false hurdle we've placed in our requisitions that prevent us from really scaling clean. All right. Um, Gil, have I called on you on this one? Not your update. Uh, those are, no, I, uh, those are good answers. All right. Josh, then Emily. So I'll stick with the domestic manufacturing a little bit and, and, and try to share a little, some a little experience I have with this. You know, I used to work in sourcing. So I spent a lot of time in Asia, up and down the special economic development zone. And then I would do the math for what it costs to make something locally. It was in apparel. It wasn't in, in this industry. Um, but recently, um, I think obviously we're all kind of going, how do we make this happen here? And it's, it's such a conundrum, but I have seen proposals for complete domestic manufacturing in the United States. And I have seen some interesting technologies for that low cost, uh, low capital investment uh, manufacturing facilities that spoke and hub method where you have a crucible and then you have <clears throat> local geographic assembly. And then at that assembly, I've even seen some innovative ideas like roll to module, uh, basically like a thick encased voltage variation uh, module that can be made locally with smart wire for geographic kind of like a, a better panel for a geographic area. It's a very interesting concept, like full domestic manufacturing through a methodology like this. So I've seen that. I, I'm, I'm behind it. I'm excited about it. I think as we we, do, we start to demand more and more PV over time and it needs to be uh, full life cycle, ACA kind of characteristics need to be known and the transparency can come through that too. I, I, I would be very excited about that kind of step. Emily? What's the risk you want to see clean tech take? It's not taken now. Yeah, I'm going to echo a little bit of what Nico just said about um, false hurdles and human capital. Um, Scott Jacobs, Generate CEO, was just on the Shell Cans Catalyst podcast the other week, and he was talking about how we talk a lot about policy. We talk a lot about technology in this space, but we don't talk enough about the people we need to get behind and involved in this and like which people we need to bring along and how to expand our scope and range of people that we can get involved in developing and creating and deploying these projects. It's really going to take a lot of people as well as policy and technology. So we just don't want to forget that. Okay. Closing question. Going to go round robin here. What is the change or trend or development you're noticing that you think is not getting very much attention is going to turn out to be a fairly big deal. Something you're tracking. Not a lot of people are seeing, and it could turn out to be pretty consequential. All right. Bill I, I like this crystal ball question. That's a good yeah. one. Mike. The one is really two, two things that surprised me recently that I love is, is, a, is how much progress we can make improving and accelerating the clean energy grid by controlling loads at the end. It's a little technical, but it comes in simple forms like uh, charging a battery that then charges cars, charging a battery at night, then charge the cars during the day. The other one I'm excited about is smart uh, home panels and smart uh, commercial panels and being able to make decisions that essentially allow us to use the existing distribution part of the grid in a very similar way that was already built. So uh, that's stuff that I'm seeing a lot of very recently and really excited about it. All right, Tim Montague. Well, I love the trend that there are new concentrated solar power technologies coming to the U.S. Like Phoenix is a company uh, from Canada that's using trackers for industrial hot water. I'm interviewing a company called Rondo Energy that is making hot industrial hot bricks from uh, excess wind and solar electricity. So electric thermal heat it really makes it possible to completely green industry, which is a huge uh, part of our carbon footprint. So it's just lovely to see this uh, uh, diversification and explosion of, of new 
key technologies for the clean economy? Cool. Emily? Um, I think energy storage is really going to be the development and trend to keep watching. Um, the prices came down a lot in the past year. There's been a lot of deployment. Um, there's a lot of really exciting possibility there for the grid as a whole and for grid stability and resiliency. Um, and even also thinking about energy storage beyond, you know, just batteries, but thinking about, you know, hydrogen or hydro and all these other ways to think about how we can be storing the energy we produce by renewables. Nico? Man, this was fun. The thing that keeps coming back around in the conversations I'm having with folks is kind of two, there's two trends that are, that are coming together. Uh, if you listen to any of the podcasts, I was going to do a book, a book shout out to Tony Fidel's new book, Build. Holy freaking moly. Put this on your list. Um, this guy, like Future Shape, is really investing in the shape of, uh, of, of clean tech. And if you listen to Folks like Tony Fidel, I want to see more communicators like that leading clean tech companies, or at least building firms that invest in clean tech companies. I know a really good one. Nate, tell them to give my number. Absolutely. Uh, But, you know, uh, Tony thinks a lot about the consumer. I think that we are inevitably moving towards a market where I was recently in a conversation with a company in the industry who has adopted a, a framework. Uh, you probably recognize it. I won't call their name. Make, use, say, store, sell, something like that, right? But that last piece is a question that I asked really early on in my podcast. Um, what do we think about transactive energy? The, adop- the idea that we as consumers can actually take back the power and have it as local power, as Bill often says, it is the most powerful transformative thing happening in clean energy. And uh I'm really bullish on the notion that transactive energy is closer than we uh, than we thought it was. Gil, last word. Trend you're tracking, you're seeing, you think it's going to be big. No one else is really paying attention. Well, I hope this is big and this is sort of random, um, but I was introduced to this company called Zero Avia and they um, do hydrogen powered fuel cell powertrains uh, for, for aviation. And I was struck by... Um, the applicability of that technology, which really cuts design costs um, and you can do it on much bigger planes, right? So they're going to be testing it on a 20 seater. And eventually their goal is to, is to get it to a 40 to 80 seat aircraft by 2026. Wow. And just blown away by the AV. Um, there seems to be more focus on the, these kind of four person people movers, little vertical takeoff and landing things uh, but, you know, that's just not applicable for most types of uh, aviation. And I had no idea the kind of um, applications with fuel cell and, and uh, that was happening in broader aviation. So I I hope that begins to get more attention. I think it will. I know it's only 2% of emissions, but in terms of capturing the imagination of the American people, what's happening in uh, aviation uh, is pretty exciting. I'll close out. I'll go out on a limb and I'll... I'll um... Hey, Mike, you oh, missed me on that one. Oh, I'm sorry, Josh, forgive fast. me. I want to I bounce off of Bill's uh, uh, load control panels because we just installed this band system here on my home. And I was chatting with Chad Conway, I think he's COO of, of Span, and he was talking about uh, some of the unique value propositions of load control panels. And one of them that really struck me as amazing was the prospect of being able to remove the need for a panel upgrade uh, by kind of toggling loads and changing how you use loads. And so using it real time, I'm seeing some of the... Uh, 
a series of values that I'd never considered before. But I mean, in terms of the electrification, transfer, storage, solar, I think the load control panel can kind of be the end. It's not super sexy, but there can be a real teeth to this technology. It can make a huge difference on a lot of levels to how we deploy renewables. Nice. Local energy. Josh, forgive me for that that omission here. All right. So I'm going to close out with um, perhaps a unwarrantedly bold prediction. I think there is, I'm starting to get a sense of the little rumblings, post-Dobbs, post-Mansion performance art that people are getting, that clean economy has invested almost all of its smarts, all of its efforts into product development, building teams, commercial execution, and we've totally underinvested in our ability to publicly case make. And I've got an analysis we're going to be putting out um, next week. It's robust. It's been six months in the making, but I'm, I'm going to give you... Um, I'm going to give you two things here out of that analysis that I think are, are it's big people are beginning to realize we cannot be permanent beggars in the court of public opinion. When it comes to government officials, I've asked this question on LinkedIn and, I, and I'm going to be posting something out later today. I contend there's not a single elected official, regardless of party, geography or office, who's politically afraid of crossing the ruble energy industry, not who likes us. But who's afraid of us? Because politicians need to need, they first need to be afraid of you. Then they can respect you. Then they can love you. And we go right to love. Well, you won't love us. You know, we're all broken hearted. That Joe Manchin doesn't love us. Well, we don't have any offer Joe Manchin, right? Other than a, other than a tin cup. I'll, I'll just wind you down with this, with this anecdote. So I'm reading a book and it recounts a time in the U.S. Senate when the oil and gas industry got a major champion to kneecap the reconfirmation of a, of a consumer-minded reformist running a major federal agency. And this, uh, this consumer, the pro-consumer uh, regulator had been put up for renomination to run a major federal agency. And the oil industry had a senator set up a special committee to kneecap this, this gentleman. At the same time, the oil industry is funding this unprecedented effort to like basically do a dossier on him and give the panel that was going to be hearing his renomination than what they needed to basically ambush him and wipe him out. And they did. And that took place 70 years ago. And that senator's name was Lyndon Baines Johnson. And the company was Brown and Root. And the reformer's name was Leland, Leland Oles. He wanted to basically enforce the Natural Gas Act of 1938, stop the gas guys from overcharging Midwestern, Northeastern population centers gouging on gas. And Johnson, basically, they promised Johnson a lot of money. They flew him around on planes and he kneecapped this guy. And the question I'm going to pose is, do we think that in the last 70 years, the oil and gas industry has gotten less aggressive, less sophisticated, less um, good at weaponizing government and propaganda to stop our scaling? And if you do, then you definitely live in a... Um, psilocybin recreational state because I, I can tell you they've gotten really good and i think that we are starting to realize that we cannot get anything with a smile and a handshake we're going to get things with smile and a handshake and a gun so i think unless we equip ourselves with the ability to get politicians afraid of us we are not going to we're going to get treated no better than joe manson been treating us no better than the supreme court's been treating us that's my sense i think there's a growing recognition of that i hope we'll see I'll close out with that. Panelists, you are awesome. Thank you for our uh, five returners. Emily, it's been great having you. We're going to just, you better count. We're going to be coming back at you to get you back on. So um, mark it down. We'll be back at you in a quarter. And uh, who's going who's going to RE Plus? Can I just get a show of hands? Who's going there? All right. All right. More cool. hands. More hands. 
Cool. All right. Well, listen, hey, thank you all. And audience, thank you for joining us. We are um, just delighted to do this. It's so fun. And thank you, podcasters, for joining us. Y'all take care. Great to see everybody. Thanks, everybody. Thank you. Thanks, Mike. Thanks, Nico. Thank you. All right. That is a wrap on that quarterly roundtable. And it really, truly was fantastic all the way up and including Mike's little monologue right at the end about Mansion. I hope that you are inspired. I know that you are more well educated on topics that are meaningful to you because they're meaningful to all of us. That's why we do these quarterly roundtables. And that is why I would encourage you to tune in next time. Of course, you heard Mike say that there are going to be some of us who join together in Anaheim. Are you going to RE Plus, formerly known as Solar Power International? I would love to know it. Would you email me, nico at mysuncast.com? Just put in the subject line, RE Plus, I'll be there. And I'll respond back. I'd love to see you. Speaking of see you, you can come see us at the Power Up Central Media Zone. The Power Up Central Media Zone is the rebirth of our podcaster's lounge, which we brought and debuted in 2019. It is a place where these podcasters and others as well as many thought leaders in the industry, will gather right on the show floor. It's all the way to the right-hand side, if you're looking at the map, all the way down to the end of the aisle right by Startup Alley. And it's going to be a lot of fun. 30 by 40 booth where we will be podcasting and live streaming the whole show. Make sure you don't miss it. If you want to be a sponsor for the Media Zone and you're still looking for a way to have an impact right on the show floor, but you are one of the 50 plus that are waiting for a booth to know if you've got one or you don't have a booth and you're trying to figure out how can I have my brand have a presence? Please email me with the subject line, RE plus media zone. And I'll get back to you and let you know how you could have a presence right on the show floor by partnering with us and helping sponsor the media zone. There are so many ways to connect. LinkedIn is one of my favorites. So I hope you'll find me on LinkedIn and give a like and a comment. What did you learn from this session with our esteemed panelists, our podcaster extraordinaires today? Chime in on our LinkedIn post and let us know that you're listening and you care. Don't forget, in two days, we have episode 500, where our good friend and longtime Suncast listener and guest and top most downloaded guest of all time on Suncast, Mr. Andy Klump turns the mic on me, Nico Johnson, and he does the interviewing and I do the question answering. It was a little uncomfortable, but I think you're going to like it. I hope you'll tune in. Until then, have fun, my friends. And remember, you are what you listen to. Thanks again for showing up, Solar Warrior. It's half the battle.